Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to our listeners of the Victor Davis Hanson Show. This is the Friday News Roundup where we talk about the news of the week or some of the events. We got a really eventful week this week. So we'll look into Donald Trump, new accusations, Gavin Newsom and talking about his green energy policy. Don Lemon seems to have been flummoxed by a British um, a British intellectual on slavery and then Sonny Halston. So we'll be looking at those today. I would like to remind everybody that Victor is the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow in Military History and Classics at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. He is available at his website, victorhanson.com. Please come join us, $5 a month or $50 a year, and it's a great value, and we welcome everybody. But let's go ahead and take a moment for some messages and come right back. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back, Victor. As I always ask, how are you doing today? <laughs> well, I'm back in the farm and I finally resumed work on a book that had a hiatus because of long COVID. I think I'm going two steps forward. I know that's a broken record, but I have a lot of empathy. I want to thank a lot of people who wrote me, some medical, some not, about their own experiences with this bizarre hyper autoimmune response to an otherwise pedestrian case of um, acute COVID. And I hear everything from go out of the country and get your blood washed to get stem cells injected to take massive doses of fill in the blanks to don't exercise, do exercise, do graduated exercise. This week, I uh, I kind of overdid it. I thought I was uh, going to exercise my way to health and I kind of crashed, but that's normal. And I'm back uh, confident that uh, everything will be okay. All right. So we'll be back in the saddle sometime soon. Uh, hopefully, I hope huh? so. <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't a very good horseman when I grew up. My grandfather broke horses for a living, but never could quite get me to ride very well. And he was an expert breaker, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was. Frank Hansen, I mean, gosh, he could take any horse and break it. And I I knew him when he was in his 70s, you know, late 60s. And my gosh. That's amazing. He he was a World War I wounded combat veteran. He was gassed with lung damage. And he was in charge of uh, Teamsters. Before he went into a combat unit, he was drafted for his knowledge of horses. And he... He trained an African-American uh, whole platoon about, and he worked with them, and he was a teamster with them. Yeah. And, uh, so he was, he had nice things to say about people from the South that were African-American because he respected their knowledge of horses like his. And it was kind of a dying art, even when he was young mm-hmm. in 1917 and 18. 
Yeah. And didn't he keep lots of other animals as well? He's kind of an animal man rather uh, than a human man. Oh my gosh, it was a menagerie. We'd love to go down to the little 40 acres. He had turkeys and ducks and chickens and peacocks on the home and goats and pigs and sheep and cows and horses and especially donkeys and mules. They were everywhere. And uh, he rented his little, he had quit farming. My dad had quit farming his 40 acres and he got rent and hay and fodder wow. for all of these animals, and we had to butcher them. He taught me how to cut off chicken feet and kill them and wring their necks and all these things at a very young age. Uh, and he had a, an array of guns, so we we would shoot squirrels in the, in the cattle pasture and stuff. So I really learned a lot from him. He had a very thick Swedish accent. He was a wonderful person. He died at 79 from, believe it or not, 40 years, uh, 50 years earlier, uh, gas damage, phosphine gas in his mouth and esophagus Mm. from the reflux of eating um, canned meat and drinking water that had had been exposed to poison gas and ate parts of his stomach and esophagus and lungs. Oh, my God. And so he was kind of disabled, but it didn't really form tumors until he was in his late 70s. Wow. Wow. Okay. Well, after that, let's turn to the news for this week. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about is poor Trump and his family. I'm, I mean, I, I guess I, I don't trying to be political. I feel sorry. They just keep getting they, the left won't let them go. They're like rabid dogs that have, you know, taken hold of a carcass or something. And he's being sued. Um, 200 counts by the New York um, Attorney General, Letitia James. I was wondering your thoughts on it. Well, I mean, you, you sort of summed it up. Their, their idea is that they want to destroy him politically, destroy his family, destroy his business, destroy his person. And uh, there, some of their experts in the party, the old political hands, are getting a little worried because they're afraid that Donald Trump may or may not have pulled as high as, say, Ron DeSantis. And so you see a subtle shift where the New York Times is running an op-ed that, you know, Donald Trump is kind of a funny guy, kind of like they did with Reagan or mm-hmm. George W. Bush. George Bush was kind of a good painter. He wasn't that bad. Uh, or Ronald Reagan, you know, he would have, these people, George H.W. Bush, they always praise the guys, everybody says, when he's out of office, and then they demonize his successor. So they now they're worried about DeSantis, so he's a prince of darkness, and he's mean, and he's cruel, and he's awful. Yeah. Whereas before, he was a Harvard-trained military veteran, but, but he would not, you know, and Trump wasn't, and all this. So that's going on, but Trump was on Fox the other night, and he looked kind of wearied and tired. He's a lot more soft-spoken than he usually is. I think it's starting to get to him. As far as Letitia James, I, I don't think it's going anywhere. You can't be a state prosecuting attorney, the state prosecuting attorney of New York, and announce during your campaign that you're going to go after Donald Trump. That's what she said. Yeah. And remember, there was no criminal statutes. They hadn't found any. It's, it was part of a civil complaint, but the banks aren't suing them. The banks aren't saying, you doubled the value of your properties, and therefore we issued you a loan, and therefore you didn't pay it back. They're not saying that at all. She's saying that to inflate his net worth, i.e., what every American, I think, does, mm-hmm. uh, he gave a ballpark figure that was not accurate according to official appraisals at the time. But we all know that I can tell you that owning some property, I had a house or two. And when you look at the official appraisal, and it depends on the market value, but in one case, it was not nearly worth as much as it was appraised. In the other case, it was worth a lot more. Depends on the market. <laughs> and nobody knows what it's worth until you put it on the market. Yes. I, mean, I can tell you that as a person who's bought a house or two, I never really knew what I was going to pay for it, depending on the intricacies of the market and the interest rates and uh, everything. And and I know that when I've asked people about, you know, what is that car worth or what is, that, you know, that pickup worth, they always inflate it. Uh, so, but he didn't do anything that led to a criminal act, and she knows that. And it's part of this 
new style of urban prosecuting attorney, the Soros DA, and they feel that the law is not the law. It doesn't represent a natural, we talk about that, a phenomenon. It's not absolute. It's a relative construct that was made by bad people. And woke, often African-American um, people who have been victimized by the system deserve a shot at interpreting the laws in which they're going to prosecute and which are not. And they see it as a legitimate weapon, whatever the law says, to either neglect it or to exaggerate it for political purposes. And this is all deemed perfectly legal. And what I just said, I will get emails from my Stanford colleagues. But that's the truth that people, especially uh, in a racial context, and I think that that's happening with a lot of the inner city mayors and district attorneys are trying to use the law as a political tool to advance a particular political agenda rather than to look at individuals. So what I'm saying is if Donald Trump was either a, I think if it, I don't think his race is the main thing here with her, it's his political beliefs. If this was, if this was a, left-wing entrepreneurial person, you know, a Warren Buffett or a Jeff, she wouldn't dare do this. She wouldn't dare do this. And so she's going after somebody that she thinks will win a, applause from her constituency. But you don't broadcast what you're going to do and then go do it and <laughs> twist and torture and manipulate the law. Yeah. All of this is, I guess we should put it in a larger context. When you see all of this, and I mean, we just had the South Carolina Democratic candidate said she was tired of, of you have to treat white folks like, I mean, use the word she used, like shit. And then you had the Pentagon Education, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion officer saying, I'm so tired of white people. And then you had the mayor of New Orleans said, I had to fly first class because I'm not safe back in a car. You know. And then you had this, it, it just... And then you juxtapose that with the Duke lacrosse and the latest Duke volleyball player and the Jesse Small and the Covington kids. And you look at the nightly YouTube of the man with the axe or the man with the baseball bat or the man that plays the knockout game or the man who executes somebody in the ground with a pistol or the man who is shooting and murdering people in Chicago every night, and you put it all together, and then you juxtapose that on the reality. You can't talk about that. That three to six percent of the demographic is is committing statistically fifty percent of the crimes. Just can't talk about that, and or that the smash and grab uh, carjackings are a direct result of the perception that there is no crime in, involved in that, that it's either social justice or it's crime is just a, a bothersome construct. And you put this all together. And that is why people now two years ago said crime was a very small consideration. And now it's way up there with inflation and energy costs. Number three, it's ahead of the border. Even. Yeah. And so I think there's going to be people are going to say, if this continues, uh, society, as we know, cannot be sustained. If yeah. you can't go to a Walgreens at 11 at night for your child's prescription, or you can't jog in the early morning hours in Memphis, or you can't just be driving back from a party and at a rail crossing in Baton Rouge, or you can't be just a, bunch, a young teenager and be run over, then you don't have a society. Yeah. And that's what we are. And, and it's not me saying this. It's the 500,000 people who left California, the 500,000 people who left New York, the 400,000 that left Chicago. That's the, who's saying this. People are saying one thing, that they love the big nightlife or the big city, or they love the tolerance for Roe versus Wade type of issues in the blue states, but they they look at their pocketbook, the economy, crime, and they want to go to mostly small town rural America or even south of the Mason-Dixon. How funny that this illiberal Southern society transmogrified into a more tolerant place than did the so-called liberal blue state that degenerated 
into a very intolerant and judgmental and nullifying society. Yeah. You know, I was just going to say you're getting kind of to what I was going to ask you, and that is, doesn't it raise questions about her constituency that she thinks she will get elected by saying those things? Yeah, absolutely. That is it her constituency doesn't recognize that, that you don't go after somebody when you get in office. They do with That's Trump. The- they, she, she, look, she's in New York and she's left wing, so that should be a shoe in but she's running even with her opponent, even. And that's a commentary how angry people are. That's unheard of in New York. It's like Lonnie Chan running for a straight state controller on whose behalf I'm going to go speak in a few hours in Fresno. Yeah. The point I'm making, he, he could well be elected in California. So there is a lot of people privately, silently, stealthily, clandestinely saying, what I say, I'm not going to do on election day when I fill out my ballot or my earlier mail-in ballot. Yes. So they, she's in trouble. But your question is more, well, how in the hell did 50% of the electorate want that kind of governance as their attorney general? And I can say to you that just go, as I have, go to the Upper West Side in New York and talk to people or go to... Massachusetts or any of these enclaves and and encounter the wealthy, white, liberal, coastal elite. And you get into a whole complexity of neuroses. And one of them is, I would rather be charged as a child molester than to say that I was illiberal or racist or judgmental. And so Mm -hmm. that's how they look at the world. Yeah. And just to um, sort of finish the picture of Trump, he's got that case going on. He's got the raid on Mar-a-Lago and currently the, uh, the I think it's the Supreme Court. Anyway, the, the appeal to hand over his um, the materials to a special master was um, turned down. I mean, the appeal to not allow that was turned down. So the left is kind of happy um, about their Mar- Mar-a-Lago raid. But that too. So I don't understand not- one thing, and that is when Richard Nixon went through two years of Watergate, he had phlebitis, he had a terrible flu. You could see him, he was almost destroyed physically. And when he left office, he didn't even look like the man who had been elected just two years earlier. Yeah. And when Bill Clinton went through the Monica Linsky, all of Bill Clinton's health problems. They accrued not just from his Big Mac and overweight and stuff, because he did jog and stuff, but you looked at his face during that whole period, and he almost broke. And when you looked at George H., uh, George W. Bush, when he went into office in 2000, when he was tan, he was fit, he was bench pressing his weight. And when you looked when he went out in 2008, he was puffy, gray, sullen. And that's what it does to a president. I'm not picking on any particular president. So I don't understand that this man is in his late 70s, right? 78 or 77. And no one could have gone through the Russian collusion lives and be lied about the alpha bank pings, the so-called collusionary meeting in Trump Tower, all of these bombshells, walls are closing in constructs, and then go right into Venman and the whistleblower and Adam Schiff's concocted phone call about Ukraine when the guy actually did give them offensive weapons that Obama would not, and he was impeached, and then go through all of that, and then the whole anger about January 6th, part of it self-deserved, and then this raid and all of these lawsuits and look at him he's still standing i've never seen anything like it i don't know it's incredible huh it does he i don't know he's reputedly eats fast food ice cream he reputedly sleeps four or five hours you know there are certain people that you know i got to know rush limbaugh a little bit and he had an enormously strong constitution i think he slept about five or six hours he was a voracious reader he, he brought that material three hours every single day, fresh, brilliant material. He was in constant demand. 
and yet he 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 didn't last into his 70s mm. and so you you see i don't see how certain people can take that stress and and not collapse especially trump i've never seen any president so unfairly attacked and i mean unfairly if you're on the left and listening let's just blank out what his record was and you're in opposition to it let's talk about the first day he was in office when what 65 house representatives filed articles of impeachment or that madonna was talking about blowing up his residence the white house he had kathy griffin holding up his decapitated head and you had the Shakespeare Company and Central Park acting out Julius Caesar and stabbing a guy who looked just like Donald Trump dash Caesar. And then you had Rosa Brooks almost on day 11 publishing an article that he could be removed by a coup that would be legitimate if he couldn't be impeached or declared non complicementos And we went through the, remember the Bandy Lee psychodrama, the Yale psychiatrist that everybody canonized and idealized and iconicized because she said Donald Trump was insane and needed a straitjacket intervention and she was paraded around Congress and then that prompted the Mon Montreal cognitive assessment that he aced which Joe Biden probably wouldn't get one correct and then all of a sudden some of us wrote well wait a minute this is professional malpractice for a professor of psychiatrist psychiatry and psychology and a practicing psychiatrist to diagnose somebody at a distance. And then all of a sudden now, guess what? She's attacked and all of the left wing pink, you know what? She's no longer useful anymore. So we kind of impugned our credibility by you know, idolizing her. So we're gonna go back and officially cite her and demonize her for doing something that was unprofessional. That's what the left does. Yeah. People should remember that on the left because they're doing things right now that are very dangerous in their yeah. rhetoric and they're saying things and they're attempting things that when this all cools off, people are going to look at John Meacham, the professor at Vanderbilt. He should have learned that if you're an academic or you are a presidential historian and some president calls you up and wants advice, you can give them advice but you don't go work for them and then go on to television and praise your own corpus. And that's what he did. And he was cited for that yeah. in, in early 2000. And what did he do? He went right back. And he was the one, I think, from reports that took his recent book and transmogrified it into that live in the shadows. And some, some are sunlight, Eloy, and some, I guess, are Morlocks that live in the shadow of life. Yeah. But they're going to regret it because that they've they've mortgaged their reputation and it's going to be defaulted and they yeah, should be ashamed of themselves. All these people. I hope that, that doing, all comes true. I do. Yeah, they, they, they will, it will because yeah. they're saying things that are complete lies. The whole yeah. collusion was a lie. The hunter disinformation was a complete lie. Yeah. And um well, they seem to be getting away with that stuff right now. They That's do how it short feels term, to me. But yeah. people are getting, American people are weird. I mean, they make short term mistakes and they get caught up in the, like in the May 2020 hysteria where they didn't really demand that that rioting and looting and killing and arson stop. And they didn't, you know, and then the media kind of convinced them that Donald Trump brought it on, all of that stuff. And now they're wondering why their downtowns are ruined and we have a crime spike. But in the long term, they come back to their senses. And I think they will in the midterms and the near future. And, then, and when they do, people are going to say, you know, I put up with that. And I, I you know, and there was the Antifa and then there was BLM. And of course, Antifa proved just what they said. It was a Marxist violent organization and the BLM, just what they said, the hierarchy was absolutely corrupt and stole the money and is under suit and countersuit and was violent. And Joe Biden really is non compos mentos. And so that's what that's what they, they, they affirm. And I think they'll vote accordingly. I really do. I think they, they'll understand this country is not sustainable at yeah. $7 a gallon diesel fuel or an open border or paying $22 for a tiny little thin 
some piece of meat called a ribeye steak that looks more like a waffle. Yeah. Uh, it's not sustainable. Yeah. And they're going you know, uh, oh, to vote accordingly. Yeah, I think that um, the... I think it's what I think is the most strange thing is that Donald Trump, of all conservatives that the liberals have faced, shared some of their views early on in his life. And so he wasn't so different from, you know, social liberal. Right. That's what's so funny. The Never Trump movement started. Remember this. It started with the idea that he's a phony conservative, (laughs) that on Israel, he's not there that on abortion, he's for abortion on demand, that he is for gay marriage, all of these social issues. And that's what he was, because he he navigated in the waters of Manhattan as a businessman. And it was like, sort of, you have to be a member of the liberal club, or you're not going to get a building permit, or yeah. you're not going to get the unions to work with, whatever it was he did. And so that was what he was. And he had no record of right-wing-ism. And then he saw a seam in the Republican field of 2015-16, and he said, you know what? No one's talking about China. No one's talking about the Rust Belt interior. Nobody's talking about an open border. Nobody's talking about these draining optional wars in the Middle East. And I'm going to exploit that seam. And that's how he started. And even then... CNN loved him. They loved The Apprentice. Everybody thought he was kind of funny. Howard Stern had him on talking about his sex life for years. They loved Donald Trump. And then he got a following on the people that they despised. And they cannot stand the white, working, poor, and middle class. They hate them. And when he became their MAGA champion, that's when they turned on him. And when he became very successful. And then he said things like, you know, People are coming across the border and they're not, Mexico's not sending their best. And I think when you look at fentanyl and child trafficking and prostitution and the cartels, you may have, he may have a point there. Yeah, exactly. But Victor, let's go ahead and take a break and come back to talk about um, Don Lemon and his. Wait, wait, wait. What did you say? What? Don Lemon and his. Lemon. Oh, it's the most. And you are probably the type of people who say Jesse Juicy, excuse me. You probably say Jesse Smollett. Yes. It's not. It's (laughs) Juicy Smollett. Okay. And I know that from Dave Chappelle. Remember that? He reminded of it's Smollett. They're so. They're too sophisticated for me. But let's go to a break and we'll come right back. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. Victor, so Don Lemon was dumbfounded, and I, the most precious picture of all was him at the end of the conversation with a British scholar who said that if you want to talk about reparations or who's guilty or culpable for slavery, you better start at the very source of it, and that was African slavers. And I wondered if you had some thoughts on that exchange. Well, this week, you know, I've been reading that wonderful um, U. Thomas history of the conquest of New Spain, i.e. the Cortez invasion, which is, you know, it, it, it was really one of the most engaging narratives. And I've been reading Clendenin and all these other things. And it's, it, you can't come across a page without the word slave, okay? This is pre-Columbian. 
I mean, Cortez comes in 1519, but they're talking about the Tlaxcalans or the Toltecs or the at the Aztecs at Tenoch, and it's just slave, 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 slave. And what this person was saying was that there wouldn't have been a transatlantic slave trade unless with these civil wars or these tribal feuds in Africa that the losers were not shipped for money to the Portuguese, to the Spanish, to the British. Okay. And this was uh, about equivalent in numbers. I'm interpreting here, but this is what she's make, basing this very cogent argument on. She didn't have time to go out like I am. Maybe I don't have time. But they were also shipping to the Mideast about 11 million people, okay, the Islamic world was, from African slave providers, okay. And in this equal opportunity slavery where African Africans were selling Africans to Europeans to go to the Atlantic or to Islamic peoples to go to the Middle East or Asia. There was also slavery, of course, in China, in India, of various categories. And then she was saying, before you indict the queen and her empire, i.e., you should understand that there was only one country that first, before any other country, outlawed slavery. And that was, what, 1808, 1809? 1808, yeah. Yeah, and that was the British government. And so here was Don Lamone suggesting that they had a lot to account for because they engaged in slavery. And she was saying that they did before, but there were a lot of British warships that, you know, sank slavers and they attacked them. And there were people who died fighting to stop the trade, something that America, in this, at least in the southern part, continued. Yeah. And so he didn't, what I'm getting at, what, why did it go viral? It went viral for three reasons. One, this woman was very, very articulate and knowledgeable. And B, she did something that you're not supposed to do. She defended the British Empire in both absolute and relative terms. Absolute, what it did was moral, and it was something that they had wanted to do even earlier. And in relative terms, it was something that Asians and North America, other North American colonialists or Africans themselves were not doing. And then C, it exposed Don Lamone as a total ignoramus, because all he had to do was say, now, wait a minute, that's wrong. There were no North African or West African slavers, or no, that there, there was no slavery anywhere else. It was all across the Atlantic, or at least he could make that pseudo argument. But he had no facts. He had nothing. He just looked like a deer in the headlights, like, wait a minute. I'm Don Lamone now, Sammy. Wait a minute. You're not supposed to say that. You know the rules. You're supposed to grimace, bite your lip, look down and apologize, and then try to outdo me and attack the queen. That's how it goes. And I pile on and thank you. And you can come on. But you oppose me. And you had facts. And I'm an ignoramus. And what am I going to do now? So I'll just say, thank you, we'll have you on. That's what he did. I bet when the cameras turned off, he fired whoever uh, brought that person on. That's my guess. <laughs> no doubt. But I don't think Don Lamone is going to be firing anybody because this is a man who had a primetime show and was demoted to sharing a morning low-rating show and claimed it was, what, a promotion? So the people that are running CNN don't want it to lose all this money. They don't want it to be a joke anymore. And they understand that MSNBC has got a monopoly on left-wing hatred. So they want to go back to being in the airport and with the pretense of being politically neutral. And so they're getting rid of Brian Stelter and John Hart, all of the worst people, but they've got a long way to go. And I don't know. I don't think they'll be able to pull it off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, along the same lines, we have that Sunny Hostin who uh, was critiquing Nikki Haley for changing her name as cultural accommodation. Was that the, the claim? That some, or accommodation? Pro, I think it was oh. accommodation. She oh, yeah, was that's trying a, that's to be a like subset of, a, of, of appropriation. Yeah. And so and then it turns out she's not so perfect herself. But I was wondering your thoughts on that. 
Well, I mean, again, it's like Don Lamone. You just go on, I mean, when I go on Fox, I don't know exactly what they're going to say. I have a general topic, but I, you sit in a chair in this automatic studio and you try to think and prepare in your mind so you don't embarrass the station or people who believe what you do or yourself. You just don't go on there and say crap. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, but she, they do that. And so when she says that Nikki Haley and Nikki, it's the basis of a, of a, of an indigenous name in India, you know, that's on her birth certificate. But when she wants to attack a conservative minority and suggest this supposed light skinned Indian woman is trying to pass in the way that I am trying to pass because she, did not use her birth name, but why wouldn't you know that in advance? Why wouldn't you think, hmm, if I want to accuse her of being a, quote, Uncle Tom, then I better be careful how I'm going to contextualize the fact that I changed my name to sort of an anglicized Sonny, and she didn't do it. And then you're looking, she should have looked across the table and said, wow, that's Whoopi Goldberg. (laughs) She has changed her name and appropriated a Jewish name. And why did she do that? Was that because she wanted to pass or she wanted to be mainstream or she wanted to be attention like I did when I picked Sonny, but like Nikki Haley did not? Did not. That was her real name. And yet I'm accusing her of what I and Whoopi have done when she didn't do it. And so it was a complete cluster blank blank. She just, she was just embarrassing, but it brought up another issue and that's cultural appropriation because it also came with that, (laughs) that was it state representative in Ohio, that sort of plump, uh, my age type of gray haired woman that was rapping. Oh, yes. Yes. And everybody (laughs) made from her because she was appropriating a culturally uh, exclusive genre. And I thought, no, cultural appropriation doesn't exist. And if it does exist, it's just a left-wing construct because how many black women are wonderful sopranos or opera singers? Opera is a culturally appropriated uh, genre from where? Italy. It has nothing to do with Africa. It has nothing to do with America. So according to the cultural appropriation logic, no African-American should be able to be a wonderful opera singer, (laughs) right? Or you can't have an African-American who's a wonderful uh, bluegrass, maybe blues, but not bluegrass. That is a white Appalachian phenomenon. And it's got strains of the blues, but it's, and you do, you have wonderful African-Americans. And I I mentioned this before, I think, but uh, I'm, of some Swedish ancestry. My great-grandfather helped found this town called Kingsburg that's not near, but was exclusively at one time Swedish. My grandfather lived his whole life there. When I was a little boy, I walked downtown, and it was mostly Swedes talking Swedish. And I remember it with fond memories. And then 20 years ago, 25 years ago, my son was playing. We're in Salma. It's primarily a Hispanic community. We went over there, and a woman said to me, and I was sitting in the Kingsburg side watching my son play Kingsburg in Kingsburg, not far from my uncle's home where I used to go, which was called King's Row or Swedish Row because there were all old Swedes that lived there in the 60s. And this woman turned to me with a Kingsburg Viking T-shirt and dyed blonde hair, who was Mexican-American, and she said, excuse me, you're not clapping when we score. Are you a Salma person? Which means, are you one of the Mexican-Americans from Salma? And I said, no. And she said, we're Vikings. You're, we're Vikings. You, you don't belong here. <laughs> I thought, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm Swedish. This was the whole, this was my culture. And it would be like me saying, you don't belong here. You belong on the Mexican-American side. What are you doing? So I said to her, are, you think I'm culturally appropriating the Vikings? Is that it? And she, was, she didn't know what that meant. But I thought that was so ironic when people play that game. You know? yeah. And so this is just something that people have acculturated to. So if you're a blonde white woman and you put dreadlocks, then you're ridiculed of appropriating. If you're a black woman 
and you straighten your hair and you dye it blonde or you're Mexican-American and you dye it blonde, which I go into town, I'd say one out of every five Mexican-American women I see have blonde or blonde streaked hair. Do I go over there and say, wow, you're like Roman uh, elites that want to look like Gauls or, or <laughs> Germans in the first century AD. You're appropriating a culture that's not yours. No, because there is no such thing in America. You can yeah. be whatever you want to be. You can acculturate, appropriate anything. And everybody's got to grow up and just apply the same rules to the same people. Always. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and we're creative in that way, too. Yeah. So. We're, it's all a creation. All of this, the, the great Shelby Steele laid it out in two seminal essays in a book. It's all based on the premise of white guilt. And you just keep saying, and white guilt is only really the monopoly of that. I get that tired trope, but it's the bicoastal elite that are prone to it. And they are the professional classes that professional minorities and academics interact with. I don't particularly feel it comfortable with them, so I don't really begrudge people elsewhere that don't feel comfortable with them for different reasons. But my point is this, that's not America. So when they suggest that, you know, there's a double standard and that's great, it's not great. And most of America doesn't agree with that of any particular background. Yeah, that's true. Well, Victor, let's go ahead and take a break here and come back and we'll talk a little bit about your Governor Newsom. We'll be right back. My Governor Newsom. We're back. And Victor, I know that California's governor, we've talked a lot about the green policies that he's implemented as being destructive. But he seems to think it's not only that it's great, but that he's going to double down on all this. And he's been recently talking on, on, you know, doing interviews to that to that end, that the carbon caps, the electrical vehicles incentives, the all green energy policy are going to be um, great for California. In fact, he just said, too, that he successfully managed and navigated blackout time in the very hot part of the summer. So I don't know what to think of this. You have to have an electric car. Just don't charge it. Yeah. Yeah. He's a certifiable dunce. By that, I mean nothing in that person's biography has ever exhibited any talent or accomplishment. He is a creature of the wealthy Bay Area elite. He's related to Nancy Pelosi. He's in that same geographic that produced Barbara Boxer, Nancy Pelosi, Dianne Feinstein that incestuous uh, Bay Area elite, wealthy. He doesn't represent the demographic of, Amer- of California, but, he, but somebody has said to him, look, we know you're a little spoiled, wealthy kid of privilege, but there's a seam here, and that is to be more radical and crazy than left-wing people, especially on climate and something. So go out there and be edgy. And that's what he does. And the left is looking around and they're thinking, well, Joe Biden will be lucky if he finishes his term. He will not be the nominee. Now, if he's not going to be the nominee, we revert back to the most recent field. And what do we have to select from? Well, we've got Spartacus. We've got Pocahontas. We've got Julian Castro. We've got uh, Beto <laughs> O'Rourke, the, Beto. who will soon be a three-time loser. And who else is there? There's no one else. Maybe some guy from business. I don't know. But there's nobody. But there is Gavin Newsom, and he looks the part. So he's now running around the country talking about what he's done for California. Well, no, excuse me, what he would like to do, because he can't talk what he's done for California because we pay the highest income taxes. We pay about the fourth highest sales taxes. We pay the highest gas taxes. We pay the highest gas gas prices in the continental United States. We pay the highest electricity in the continental United States. And what do we get? 
we get 45 in high school test scores. We get about 48 in infrastructure rankings. We get one third of the welfare recipients, even though we only have one sixth of the population. We get about 40% of the homeless people. We get 21% of the people living below the poverty line. And in a tribal, ethnically chauvinistic state, we have 27% of the population was not born in the United States. And you put all of that up, and in any sane state, that would be a mark of utter failure. We have no timber industry. He drove it, they drove driven out of the state. So their mulch policy means when 60 million trees die to drought and bug infestation, then you let them crumble. And you say, this is wonderful. You're enriching the ecosystem for woodpeckers and worms. And then all of a sudden you get these paradise or aspen, these creek fires, and they're just monstrosities of releasing carbon into the atmosphere. They destroy homes and you can't do anything about it. Or you have this ancient grid because you've told PG&E and Southern California Edison, you shall do this with green energy. You shall do this. You shall shut down this. And they haven't invested in their grid. And it's yeah. archaic. And so when Californians, what happens, see, is that people that are in the system go to other states. It's like I had to go speak in Georgia, and I didn't want to go last year and fly down, all the way down to southern Florida. So I just hired a guy to drive me, <laughs> you know, on the freeway. <laughs> and we pulled over in a rest stop, and I thought, this is going to be just like the 99, <laughs> you know, where you have trucks in all three lanes, and you go oh, to the rest God. stop, and the toilet looks like it's in Cairo and the, the so stores, scary. all the wrappers are open and the price tags are switched and all this stuff. It wasn't those, it was sparkling yeah. clean. Everything oh was the freeway was modern. People were normal. And so when you go there or you go to places like that, or you know, I was just in Idaho, same thing, you you say to yourself, wow, it doesn't have to be this way. Where it used to be when you went to California, you were back into the real can-do society of Pat Brown and Ronald Reagan and George Dickmajian and Pete Wilson. It was, a, yeah. it was a wonderful place to live. It really worked. We had the best freeways. We had the best airports. We had the best universities. We had among the top schools. And then we took it all and threw it away. Yeah. And I just want to assure your your listeners that don't know Central California and the Highway 99, it is absolutely frightening on that, with well, especially the, worst, the trucks. Got, you know, There's data, since I always talk about data, per mile driven, it is the most dangerous freeway in the United States. Wow. And the section between Visalia and Delano is the most dangerous of the dangerous because it three lanes each way go down to two. There is archaic off-ramps, and there's people, uh, many of the people who are driving are not familiar with the driving rules, and you'll have trucks going 70 miles an hour, 75 in both lanes, and you'll have somebody with a lawnmower or a rake that falls off that stops traffic. My favorite was I was coming home from Los Angeles and a guy who had, I guess, was coming back from farmer's market and he dropped cantaloupes, tomatoes, onions all over. And he was trying to pick them up oh in, in between traffic. Oh my gosh. And we wow. were backed up for five miles. I kept thinking there's 20, 20 people dead. Yeah. There's been a fire. There's a H CHP over to no, it's somebody who dropped his whole farmer's market load and is sneaking <laughs> back between trucks to get one onion. Oh no. Okay. Um, you know what um what Gavin Newsom also said in the particular interview that I was watching was that he was disgusted with Ron DeSantis because of the recent Martha Vineyard thing and that he supported <laughs> comprehensive immigration reform. And th this is what, what, what surprised me. But this is what surprised me. He said um, Joe Biden has a comprehensive immigration reform package. Why haven't the Democrats put it through Congress if that's true? I don't understand. I don't know if it's true or not. They could I mean, do it maybe tomorrow. It's a phantom. They, have, they could do it tomorrow no. because they have a they have a a majority of the if you know if the Senate divides that, right, then that's Kamala's, well. They could. I mean, in yeah. theory, they could filibuster it, but maybe they they try it. They could put it on 
reconciliation. They do all sorts of weird stuff if they really wanted to. Yeah. But comprehensive immigration is a left-wing term that was attracted to rhino Republicans, and it's equivalent to amnesty. And the last time we did it was called the Simpson-Mazzoli Act of 1986, in which we said the right will demand that you cannot enter the country illegally. And the left said, well, get rid of the border patrol and don't stop people and have kept. Okay. So everybody was going to have an I-9 form. And then immediately there was no security at the border. There was no border patrol down there very much anymore. And then all the I-9s were forged. And we had all these people came in and they were amnesty. And even Alan Simpson said he agreed to it on the assumption that his insistence of enforcement would be kept rather than just the amnesty of Mazzoli because he was a Democrat. And that did not happen, of course. The other problem was that the corporate right wanted cheap labor, as they always do. So that's what comprehensive immigration, it's really a euphemism for finding a bunch of rhino Republicans that want cheap labor and a bunch of left-wing Democrats that want a huge constituency, and they call it these noble euphemisms, and uh, there's no public support for it. Most people just say, there's a border, enforce it. And we already take more legal immigrants than any other country in the world, probably than all put together. What's wrong with diverse, meritocratic, and legal immigration? Why do you just let these people? See, it's an existential question. When you watch that border, Mr. American sitting in his sofa watching the television just is bewildered. He said, wait a minute, that's against the law. Why are they walking across and being greeted? What is going on? And why are they suing? Ron DeSantis for being sent to Martha's Vineyard. This is insane. And and so the Democrats know that, and it polls very poorly for them. And so they bring up, you know, xenophobic, racist. But Ron DeSantis hit on something because he said, I think he got together with his advisors and they said, look, we're going to get killed in the midterms if they keep hijacking this campaign with January 6th, the raid, uh, the Phantom of the Opera, hate him, you know, shadow of lies, deplorable speech. Right. And now we're back to January 6th again, and we're not talking about the issues. So they said, how do we get one issue that really pulls badly? They all pull badly, but energy, inflation, crime. And this is the first one. And he said, you know what? I'm going to, s- where should we ship them? They're shipping them in daylight. In the thousands, what if we just did it in the dozens during, they're doing it at nighttime in the thousands. We'll just do it in daylight in the dozen. And I bet they said, <laughs> I vote for Aspen. No, Malibu. No, Napa. Next to Nancy's house. How about Barbara Streisand's mansion? Nah, we'll just settle for Martha's Vineyard. Somebody probably said Williamton right outside Joe Biden's estate. And that was a brilliant. And well, what did the left do? They couldn't do anything, as we discussed. And so now I think it's really good because they're paranoid that he's going to do it again. And they're all, which, oh, wow, what's our zip code per capita income? Hmm, what's yeah, our demographic? Where is he going to send them next? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And how are we going to show our love for illegal immigrants when we deport them within 48 hours? we got to figure <laughs> out how to square that circle. But he should also do it with other issues, you know, and... He should say, I'm leading a national campaign. Let's just stop the jet travel on the private jet. It's a carbon spewing machine, and we are in a climate change crisis. So can I have a pledge that everybody who supports the new Green Deal pledges not to fly in a private jet for a year? Can we do that? Or can he say, you know what? You're (laughs) right about handguns. Anybody who supports restrictive permits that make it almost impossible to buy a handgun, and especially impossible to conceal and carry a handgun, would you please never hire anybody that has a handgun as your security guard? They could do all of that, and they should. Each one specifically focused on a particular issue, inflation, energy use, handguns, gun control, critical race theory, etc. And, yeah, uh, and keep it in the would news. would be a great one, you know, if you just say, if you support teachers unions and if you oppose charter schools, well, then and most of the Hollywood elite does, 
Well, then if you're a Hollywood elite person, would you please put your child in the LA school district? And that, that, that way they can celebrate diversity. They can be acquainted with how the other lives and they can check their privilege every morning when they get on campus. That would be a wonderful thing to do. It would be. And it would. would. I went to yeah. the public schools. They were almost all Mexican-American when I went. My children went when they were exclusively Mexican. And they, I thought it was good. Yeah. I learned a lot of things that I wouldn't have had gone to another public school or to a prep school. I yeah. may not have had SAT camps. I didn't have any exposure to Latin. I didn't really, we didn't have German. But I got an adequate, I mean, I whatever I missed out, I made up in college, I think. And I learned certain survival instincts at being at that rough high school. So my point is that that was very brilliant what he did. And we talked about it. And for suddenly, Liz Cheney was off the news, wasn't she? She had been all prepped because she's starting up her committee again, her vice chairmanship. And nobody was talking about it. Nobody was talking about the nuclear secrets that Donald Trump wanted to sell, like the Rosenbergs. And Michael Beschloff wasn't tweeting pictures of the Rosenbergs awaiting execution. And we were not talking, uh, you know, about Joe Biden's fan over the opera, Marine on each side, triumph of wills talk. Instead, we were just talking about an open border and how ridiculous and hypocritical the people who support it are when they do not. Did you notice one thing, though, Sammy? And I want to ask your listeners, our listeners, this. Did anybody hear Barack Obama come out and weigh in? I mean, usually when there's a controversial issue, like the filibuster, he'll hijack a funeral and call it racist or Jim Crow rally, or Michelle comes out. Remember? I don't know if my girls are going to be safe when they leave our Calorama Washington mansion. Uh, She didn't. She didn't say anything. Either did he. And because they didn't that? want people insisting on their house being used for the why not? illegal immigrants. And they didn't want it. Why? <laughs> you're, everything you're saying is against human nature, Victor. <laughs> why? And, okay, let's say they have 10 bathrooms. I hear 8 to 10. Why not just designate one, right? One yeah, that as would be a, a good bathroom idea. that people can use. And... They have, I've, you've seen those aerial views. It's a 40 acre estate. It looks like 15 acres or at least are mowed grass, which is very, I bet they use nitrogen fertilizer in a very unsustainable fashion. But you look at that huge arena there, that would be, I don't know, 50 camps you could put there. They could be a way station. Martha Vener- Gen- Martha's Vineyard should be a test case. They should say the following. We want illegal aliens to come here. It's now non-tourist off-season. We have tens of thousands of rooms, both in hotels and bed and breakfast and B&B, and we have private homes. And we're all left-wing sanctuary city people. We want them to celebrate diversity. So come here, and we will show the world a that we're not racist and b that illegal immigration brings forth the best of people and we're going to show how it can work as a model for the rest of you rather than just we can't handle them what are we going to do with them we have no rooms let's get them on a bus and then we'll wave and we'll tweet to each other how we were deeply affected and improved by their presence for 48 hours once again, I think you're too optimistic about those people. They'll, their idea is, no, no, no. They can all just stay in the deserts of Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, and California. With their own people. That's what they think. <laughs> and their own people are Mexican-Americans or Mexican residents that they feel are their own people until election time when they want to pander and cater to them. Yeah. And treat them like dirt and talk down to them. That's another that's topic. They do. Yeah, that's they're doing why that. There's a stirring among the Mexican American population along the lines of, I don't like to be talked down to, taken for granted. I don't see how open borders or transgenderism or abortion on demand is in my interest. I really don't. 
And I don't have to listen to you anymore to tell me that it is just because you open the border. And uh, you know what? I don't want the border open. Mm -hmm. And so that that's kind of what's happening. But uh, I've said before, just to finish this topic, it has a lot to do with projection. But if you feel uncomfortable with poor people or non-white people or people that are different from you and you feel very guilty because you're you you see yourself as liberal and progressive and tolerant how do you square that circle of your apartheid you live in apartheid and then you bragged everybody that you give your used clothing clothing to maria the cook or you give your at a discount your third hand car to Juan the gardener and you put your kids in prep school and you still feel bad so then you virtue signal on these cosmic issues very loudly that pretty much sums up the mentality of san francisco down to san jose or maybe from la jolla all the way to seattle yeah but it's a psychological mechanism to square the circle that cannot be squared that you live in existence that a person from mars would say was apartheid existence by choice and you feel terrible about it. Yeah, Victor. So um, let's just, we're got to close off here. And I was just wondering if you had any words about what your expectations of, I think he's calling himself Charles the third, correct me if I'm <laughs> wrong. <laughs> um, so yeah, the new king of England. Well, he's what, 73? Yeah. So his parents live to their mid 90s. And it's not like he's been in a coal mine from eight to eight every day of his life. So my point is that when people say he's an intern, I don't think so. I think he's going to be there for 25 years. Yeah, I would expect. Yeah. yeah. And he, of all the uh, kings in waiting, or queen in waiting, he's the most political. Some yeah. of his politics are understandable. He's, he's an advocate for classical architecture and English traditional architecture rather than German Bauhaus squares and all that modernism. But when you get him on the Great Reset or the Davos people or climate change, he's kind of crazy. Mm -hmm. And I think he's going to be very quiet for a while because that's been repudiated by the price. If he starts in on climate change as the king, and he jets over to Davos this winter when people in Britain are paying 10 times their normal prices for heating oil or natural gas or gasoline or whatever it is, when they have plenty, plenty of potential gas and oil, both fracking on the mainland, but especially at sea, and they're not utilizing it, I don't think that's going to be viable for him. So I expect him to zip it up and be quiet for a while and be kingly and dutiful like his mother was because yeah. his politics are not conducive for the moment not at all they sound yeah. like they might be in line with harry but i think he's been kind of strict on harry's abandonment of the That's family not political though that is insulting you know when yeah. his own son kind of like <laughs> prince edward marries a divorce american divorcee but when he goes over and marries an American divorcee who has some African-American heritage, but is kind of a wannabe actress, elite, wealthy person. And immediately they lodge complaints against their own family, you know, that they feel snubbed or that they're racist. And then they start to translate that animus toward the royal family, which has made them wealthy into a whole industry down in Montecito where they live life of American royals with these mansions and this private jetting. And they they feign this victimhood. It's just a lose, lose, lose situation for them. Everybody says all at once, you're not a victim. You live like kings. You're, <laughs> you're not a victim of racism. I couldn't even tell what race you were, Megan. And then why are you angry at these people if they took your titles away? What are your accomplishments other than the notoriety that comes with being a monarch or, you know, in a monarchy? What other thing have you done, Harry? Even though he served in the military, yes, but so have thousands. Where's the book, the film, the invention, the cause that you've that have made you singular? Do you know any of them that makes Meghan Markle 
distinguish other than she's a disgruntled would-be royal, I guess. So they're very upset when Prince Charles thinks, you know what? My mom was very tolerant, and my own son betrayed me and trashed me and said I was ostracized from him, alienated, I think he told Oprah. And they gushed about how wonderful they were at our expense to that American media. And they basically said we were all racist. Now my mother's dead. And I'm in control. And I'm not like my mother. And I'm not above it all. And I'm more you know, attuned to what my son does than my mother's was to her grandson. And I'm yeah. done with him. And I think yeah. it's going to be really hard on them. I think they're just going to smile and say, we love it, you guys. You're so wonderful. You're part of the royal family. This is really good. Oh, by the way, we're going to help you out. We're going to take those titles back. You really don't want them. They were just reminders how racist we were and how imperial and onerous the British legacy is for you. So we're just going to take them back. And you know what? We love you so much. We suggest that when you come over to England, don't stay in the royal accommodation just get a hotel you're wealthy i think that's what they're going to do yeah that's probably true well victor thank you for everything today i think we're going to call it quits here um just absolutely stunning things happening this week and your commentary on them has been much appreciated by me and your listeners well thank you very much and thank everybody for listening yeah this is sammy wink and victor davis hansen we're signing off